I'm super excited to get into a gospel. We haven't been in one for about four epistles, which is equal to about eight years. <laughs> or more, I, I didn't look. Uh, but I'm eager to get into the life of Christ, to be reminded of his instruction, his example. And uh, I think there's plenty of need for that going on around us. So, Now, in, in this, I don't want the word theology to concern you, okay? In the phrase, it just simply means that we're going to consider what God says about family. That's what theology really is. Uh, theology, of course, is the study of God. But in the theology of family, we want to know what God says about family, about marriage, about raising our children, about the benefits of it. And uh, wherever the family fails, society follows with it. Okay? And so we definitely want to uh, give our time to this and uh, learn what we can. So, and um, what we're planning on as far as the ministry of Calvary Chapel is that every quarter we want to be helping equip and instruct our fellowship because you've noticed that there's a few marriages here and a few children. Uh, Tucker was giving an understatement when he said that the children outnumber us. I think the adults are probably outnumbered by about 100 children, okay? which, is, which is lovely, by the way, as long as you can throw that haymaker. Okay? <laughs> yeah. So um, I do need to say it's not going to be a one-man show. Uh, there's a number of, of couples uh, in this church that have a lot to add uh, to this context, both in marriage and family. And so I'm going to be giving up the pulpit from time to time uh, for them to uh, be a blessing to us, to be a blessing to me, uh, especially in the context of raising children. Uh, I'm very frequently the student, and so I'm very thankful that those people are among us. Amen? Yeah, so... Uh, it's also our intention to host a marriage conference and a family discipleship conference, hopefully in the near future. We're looking at potential speakers and times and all of that. Uh, one of the blessings of COVID is that it freed all these people's schedules up. Uh, but now, but maybe the, the Delta variant will cause that again. Um, I'm not going to pray in that direction, uh, but I do pray that their schedule is open for us. And uh, so be praying for us as we select people. We want to bring people here that are gracious, that uh, are instructive from the Word. Yeah, very practical. And, um, yeah. and I would say that um, our goal in all of this is to, to really encourage the couples of our church to establish a vision for family and then come alongside them to help them fulfill that vision. That's what we want. Uh, we want to, at Calvary Chapel, we want to do family well. Is that okay, that your elders uh, in the church are concerned uh, for that? So this morning, uh, I'm going to provide an overview. Now, I want to emphasize that I'm going to do an overview, an overview of what the scriptures say about marriage. I'm not going to be super specific about the mechanics of marriage, but I do want to discuss God's purpose uh, for marriage, our responsibilities as a couple, and then the roles within the marriage. Now, Every, anytime I want to do something controversial, that's all I have to do is talk about roles within the marriage. Uh, and the reason is, is because our culture is so screwed up. Okay? And whether we like it or not, every one of us in here to some degree is a product of our culture. And uh, we bring that into the context of our faith, and then it creates a conflict, a tension between us and our God, between 
between us and the scriptures. And if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that I thrive on controversy. Not for the sake of controversy. I just believe the word. And uh, I'm going to teach it to you. And if you don't like it, that's too bad. I, I want you to like it. Uh, but ultimately, in the end, if you don't, your problem is not with me. Your problem is with the God of the word. And uh, I know he knows best. And so I'm not afraid to say what is best from heaven. Okay, so we're going to talk about all of those things. Um, I hope to do it with grace. Yeah, so some foundation, and then we're going to build on that foundation as time progresses. Um, I guess I need to say that as a ministry here, we're not going to be dictating to you exactly how you should do marriage and family, Uh, but with a lot of grace, we're going to share biblical instruction. Uh, We're going to provide uh, practical wisdom from hopefully lots of experience in order to encourage you uh, to be mindful of your responsibility and to be intentional to fulfill it, okay? To be intentional. Why would we do that? Well, I would say that the elders and I, with many others in the church, we just have this growing conviction for marriages, uh, for the discipleship of our children. And we have tons of reasons for it. Uh, But I have to say, it's not because the vast majority of people in our church are floundering in these contexts. Uh, I think that, well, I have to say, Calvary Chapel Centralia is is the best environment I've ever been in for marriage and family. Uh, There's just so many great things going on here that um, I'm just so blessed by. And I know that many of you are. And whatever that thing is, we want to perpetuate it. We want to perpetuate it. So... We want all of us to grow even more in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. We want to be more useful for the glory of God. We want to be, we want to ensure that we pass these things on to the next generation. And we want whatever is happening here uh, to become a benefit to those who are out there. Amen? And I think that it can be very powerful. So this morning I want to um, both inform uh, from the scriptures and I want to kind of help bring the, the gravity that comes with these subjects and then hopefully inspire more interest and more motivation. Now, if I mention a statistic um, in one of these regards um, or a trend or problem that's uh, happening within, the, within Christianity in general, uh, it's not intended to be a scare tactic, but only to inform and to alert you. We got problems in our culture, okay? Uh, there are problems with family marriages. There's so many problems, and uh, they're worth looking at. I think that reality is a necessary component for instruction. You know, don't do this. Do, do this, okay? Um, so first, our, our, our convictions are anchored to the reality that marriage and family are two of the greatest convictions of God, as we find it in the Word, okay? Uh, we have great concern for our marriages because of the influence of Western culture, The church in general has lost sight of God's design for marriage and has simply adopted what it sees the culture doing. And this is why so many marriages fail. But you know what I love about Christian marriage? It's not the only thing I love about it. But Christian marriage ought to be one of the most counter-cultural things that we do. Not in order to be counter to the culture, but just just in in the honor of God and um, doing marriage the way that he wants us to do. It flies in the face of culture. We're also concerned for our children for the same reasons. Um, instead of God's word supplying family with how we ought to instruct our children, 
and disciple them in Christ, we, we, we simply fall in step with our culture. What has been the results of that? It's tragic. It's tragic. The, the majority of youth raised in the church never return to the faith after high school. And that number decreases even more when they go to college. So what is it that accounts for all the problems in the church in the context of marriage and family? Let me start here. Romans 12, 2. Paul said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, this passage gets thrown around a lot because I think that it's rather poetic in nature. It's inspiring. It's something you see on somebody's mantle. But I don't think people often understand all that Paul is trying to communicate here. He says, do not be conformed to this world. But first of all, by non-conformity, he does not mean, you know, avoid coffee because that's what the world drinks. Okay. Mike, are you listening? Okay. You know, never own a boat because that's what the world does. Or don't participate in sports because that's what the world is doing. They play sports. It's not, you know, Paul is talking about non-conforming in regard to things with explicit moral consequences or are by nature contrary to, to God's word and his character. That's what we're talking about here. The first line in Romans 12.2 could also be said this way. Do not let your moral values be conformed to the culture in which you live. You can insert the word culture there with the word world. Now, when we talk about the world, we're talking about the system of the world, the values of the world, the way the world thinks, and the way the world, we talk about worldview and things like that. So do not mimic their philosophies for life. Do not adopt their way of thinking. Do not love the things they love. What does John say about the love of the world? He says it's bad. Okay, it's bad. Yeah, so Paul is talking about things with moral ramifications. And, and few things have greater moral consequences than the way we do marriage and raise our children. So with this kind of application we would say this, do not be conformed to the way the world does marriage. Do not be conformed to the way our world raises their children. Why not? Well, are you happy with how the world's marriages are turning out? You know, I, the great tragedy uh, when you walk through the aisle at, at the grocery stores, the magazine aisle, and you see, you know, in Hollywood or, or in uh, celebrities, it's their next relationship. You know, so-and-so broke up. Who cares anyway? But then, oh, and now, and now it's, their, it's their new fling. Or now they've gone back to their old fling, and it's just this constant game of relationships and broken lives and children involved, and it's a mess. Yeah. Are, you, are you impressed with how the world's children are turning out? <laughs> Does all of this appear to be glorifying God? So then let us not, Paul would say, be conformed to their thinking, their habits, their philosophies for marriage and family. Paul says instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, our minds are pretty screwed up. They could use a little transformation, a little renewing. Now, to be transformed means to, to change your form or shape, to change your form or shape. But here Paul is referring to the changing of the mind. Well, the mind is immaterial, so it cannot actually take a different form, but it can be renewed or renovated as the word also means, so that its values are changed, which then changes what a person does. Now, consider this in the historical context of the book of Romans. 
at least half of Paul's audience had converted to Christianity from paganism. You know, when Paul left Israel and he went out into the Roman world, oftentimes he was the only non-pagan in a city. Imagine that. It's crazy for us to think when we have so many people surrounding us that, that know Christ, that trust in him. And if they don't know him, they at least know about, know about him. Paul was for the first time introducing the Son of God to the people of the world, entire cities, entire cultures. And so they were in the church of Rome, these people, the, at least half of them had converted to Christianity from paganism, and fairly recently. That's something. So all of their habits, all of their customs, all of their training and thinking, all of their values came out of the cesspool of an idolatrous culture. That's all of their past. And Paul says to them, do not be conformed to that. Great contrast. Don't be conformed to that, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is, subject your thinking to something entirely new so that your values will be completely renovated, which will transform the way you live. You know, new converts from paganism, that's not the overwhelming challenge in the Western church today, is it? Or isn't it? Our challenge really is this. Most Christians in Western culture have been trained by the cesspool of Western culture, which is pagan in just about every, in every way. And the mistake that we've made is that we thought that it was consistent with Christianity. Because after all, we live in a, a Christian nation, right? Now, if that is true, um, this is what a Christian, a, a Christian nation looks like. We encourage sexual morality on just about every imaginable platform, especially in our schools. We diminish the virtue of marriage and child-rearing. Manhood is toxic. Motherhood is mocked. Motherhood is mocked. Our schools teach naturalistic or Darwinian evolution, which is atheism. We teach our children that sex is a mechanism of pleasure and personal choice with no moral affiliation whatsoever, and that gender and sexuality is fluid. We've murdered 70 million babies since Roe versus Wade. We do more to fund the porn industry than any other country in the world, and the same is true for human trafficking. And one of the greatest concerns in our culture is what bathroom you should go to. Is, is that what we mean by a Christian nation? I think we should consult Christ before we put his name to something that is so morally horrific as Western society. It's an insult to his majesty, quite honestly. Now, are there virtues in Western society? Absolutely. There are many. But we need to be careful when we call it Christian and then adopt its values. We need to be super careful. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing, by the complete renovation of your mind, every part of our thinking that is synchronized with the moral values of Western culture should be scrapped, should be scrapped. It should be gutted from our minds. And then, in its place, the Word of God should find its home, which prescribes God's values for us. It gives us marriage, as God intended, with the foundation and structure for raising godly offspring. You know, in, in, in historical Christianity, in, in the best of our creeds, we always upheld the inspiration, authority, and sufficiency of the Bible for all things pertaining to life and godliness. Those are our finest creeds, which, by the way, churches are currently scrapping. They're scrapping it. I don't think now is the time to toss those doctrines aside. Now is the time to uphold them 
to exalt Him and to do our best by the grace of God to live by them. When it comes to family, marriage, children, all things pertaining to life and godliness, nothing, nothing can guide us as well as the Scriptures. Nothing. The ways of the culture should be off limits to our marriage, the rearing of our children, and our minds should be retrained by the Word of God. Only then, only then can we prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God for marriage and for family discipleship. So let's do that. Let's, let's give the Word of God its proper place of authority in the context of family. And I just want to reap the benefits too. Amen? Yeah. Now, every one of us, in regard to marriage, in regard to the discipleship of our children, you know, we're at different stages, stages of growth and maturity. And what everybody in the room needs to understand is, is that's normal. Is that's normal. Do you remember what Paul said about comparing yourselves with one another? He says, you're a fool to do that. Okay. Every one of us are where we are. We, are, we, shouldn't, be com- we shouldn't be comparing. What we should be doing, as God's desire is, is that we should go from where we are to being closer to Him, to being in His likeness. So as we look through a, a biblical lens, as we consider God's Word and His will for these things, we'll see that God is always trying to bring us back to His ideal in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. You've heard me say before that it is my conviction that the most important chapters of the Bible is Genesis 1 and 2. And I'll be defending some of that later. Uh, but what you find in the New Testament is you find Jesus and the apostles always looking back to Genesis 1 and 2 and saying, there you go. That settles it with final authority. What God did in the world before sin entered the world, perfect. His intention has never changed. So it'll always be pointing us back to that. The intrusion of sin has not changed the way that God wants things. Now, if you've been married for a day, you know that sin complicates things, right? But it has not changed God's will, God's design for all of this stuff. All right, so that's just my introduction. Let's talk about marriage. I, I got time. I got time. Yeah. Marriage. You know, the foremost human relationship in Scripture is between a man and his wife, foremost. It is the most protected and regulated institution in all of the Bible. It's at the very top of God's list. Every human relationship is second to this one. Marriage is the first human institution established by God, Genesis 2.24, which is the foundation for all of society, and it's the only institution that represents Christ's relationship to the church. Ephesians 5.25-27. Why is that a weighty subject? Because the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15. Your relationship with your spouse represents all of that. It's huge. That should give us pause when we consider the value that God places on marriage. Being first in God's created order sets marriage above all human institutions. It is the most important one. It is the most important one. Jesus argues for this in Matthew 19. Paul makes a case for it in 1 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians 5, which we're going to look at thoroughly, not today. We will address it. Okay? We'll look at it thoroughly when we study Matthew. Listen, the church is the only thing that God purchased with his blood, Acts 20, 28. And as we've said, the church is the only relationship that represents Christ's relationship to the church, Ephesians 5. That's sobering. That's sobering. The same roles that Christ and the church fulfill toward one another are the same roles within the marriage 
At least they ought to be. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. How so? Well, the role that Christ fills for the sake of the church is the role that the husband is to fulfill for the sake of his wife, according to Paul. And the role that the church fills before Christ is the role that the wife is to fulfill for her husband, according to the Holy Spirit. Isn't that countercultural? Makes it kind of fun, too, because you guys all like to be rebels, right? Holy, holy rebels. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So the marriage is foremost among all human relationships. Now, if that is the value that God places upon the marriage relationship, what value should we place upon it? Exactly the same. That's right. And the only way to really give it the same value is to study all that God has said about marriage in the scriptures, and then by God's grace, day after day, give it our best effort. And your spouse would love for you to do that. Okay? Yeah. And if we do that, I love what 1 Peter 3, 7 says. If these things are mutually taking place, we will be heirs together of the grace of life. Heirs together of the grace of life. So let's quickly ask and answer a few questions that, uh, of course, I can't thoroughly unpack today, and I don't even know if I have the skill to do that. Um, but I want to lay some foundation and, um, to get you thinking and moving in that direction. What is biblical marriage? What is biblical marriage? When I do marital counseling with people or premarital, I often ask this question. And uh, more times than not, I get, I don't know, what is biblical marriage? What is God's purpose for marriage? What are the responsibilities of marriage? And everyone's favorite is what are the gender roles within the marriage? How does all that go? So biblical marriage and its purpose. Uh, the two cannot be separated in Scripture. They just cannot. When we look at the text of Scripture from Genesis and Malachi and Ephesians and 1 Peter, we discover that marriage is a covenant of companionship. A covenant of companionship. Before God created Eve, uh, you know the story. Adam had a problem. He was alone. He was alone. And when a God observed this, he said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper who is comparable to him. Really, he says, I'm going to make him an equal opposite. Equal, but opposite. Okay. And so in this whole thing, God was correcting the problem of Adam's loneliness with what? Companionship. Relationship. Okay. So God's stated purpose for marriage then is companionship. It's companionship. And this particular relationship is established by covenant. Now, in Malachi chapter 2... Uh, God is accusing and he's rebuking the men of Israel for some kind of abuse to their wives. It doesn't exactly say what it is, but it's caused um, some serious problems. Listen to the way God says it. He says to the men, he says, You have covered the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying. Now, he means by the wives. And so God does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, so typical of men, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with, you, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Your companion and wife by covenant. Now it's interesting, Peter addresses this in a similar fashion, but in light of the new covenant <clears throat> in 1 Peter 3, 7. And basically what he's saying is, Boys, you mistreat your wives, and I cut you off. It's basically what he's saying. I will cut you off. First Peter 3, 7. So marriage 
is a covenant of companionship. God corrected loneliness through companionship. That is what marriage is, and that is its purpose. What about the responsibilities of marriage? What has God placed upon the couple as their responsibility? Now, responsibility typically comes by way of imperative, that is, a commandment by being told what our responsibility is, but sometimes they come by way of implication. Well, we initially find both of those those in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. These are summed up this way. By implication, we have the responsibility as image bearers. We all bear the image of God. Do you think that that has any moral implications at all? (laughs) We also have uh, what's called the dominion mandate. Now, by dominion mandate, I do not mean dominion theology. Some of you are going, I know what you're talking about. Other people are like, I have no clue. Uh, That's for another day. We'll talk about it briefly as far as what it means in the context here. And then there's the procreation mandate. For those of you that are not familiar with the word procreation, it means to have babies. Okay? So because, first of all, God created us His image, we bear the responsibility to represent His likeness in the world. Above all else, we are to live our lives in His likeness, that is, to His moral character, because He is first and foremost a moral God. A moral God. Second, just as God rules over the universe, man has been uh, commanded to rule over the earth and everything in it. And as individuals, we're to rule over that portion given to us. And I believe that we're to participate in any collective effort that fulfills God's will for the earth. Okay, that's the dominion mandate described in Genesis 2 as tending and keeping, taking care of, and being a good steward. Okay, now, being a good steward as defined by Scripture, not by Western culture. If you do it according to Western culture, you'll find yourself worshiping nature rather than taking care of it. Okay, very different. And finally, because God is creative, we are to follow in his steps by being creative, by having babies. That's the procreation mandate, which Calvary Chapel is leading the way in. <laughs> we need t-shirts that say, go Calvary Chapel. <laughs> we will prevail. I, I want to point something out to you, which I, I found more and more fascinating as time goes on. One of the, the interesting things about God's original design, which, which communicates his perfect intent, his will, Genesis 1 and 2, before sin came into the world, is that now that sin is in the world, man is constantly just rebelling against it. Even though most people in our world don't even know what Genesis says. Isn't that intriguing? That's just the nature of sin. Whatever God says is good, sin hates it and wants to rebel against it. And this is why all cultures and societies stray from God's original design. That's why Paul tells us to not be conformed to the world. But I want you to consider this. Our culture is bent on destroying many, many things. And we often hear, you know, it's the destruction of traditional values and things like that. Well, I think we need to be careful with saying something's traditional because polygamy came about in Genesis chapter 4. That's an old tradition, and it's unacceptable by God. So let's be careful with that. Uh, We don't belong to just any tradition. We belong to the the, the biblical mandates. Amen? Yeah. So one of the things our culture is bent on destroying is, is God's image in man through various means, especially moral decay, but the killing of babies, the euthanizing of our our seniors, uh, things like that. 
the, the, the destruction of marriage, proper dominion, of course, more recently is gender, and then procreation. I've been intrigued by all of this resistance to procreation that's in our world. I don't know if you guys have seen any of this, but uh, it's, it's with the whole climate change culture. Um, and and I'm, I don't know that I'm a climate change denier. Uh, I just don't believe in all the reasons that they're, they're giving us. Okay? I think the world is screwed up because of sin, and so is the universe. And we have problems, don't we? We've got lots of problems. Okay? But because of the climate scare, tons of people are committed to not having children. But not only do they want to be passive in that regard, they want to criminalize those who are. They're mad at Calvary Chapel for having babies, according to God's command. Yeah, we are the problem. I guess with that, I would say don't be afraid. God has promised that the earth will remain seed time and harvest until the end. Okay, Genesis 8, 22. We don't have to worry about burning this place up because God is going to do it himself. But he will rescue us first. 2 Peter 3, 12. Be that as it may, sin, even without direct knowledge from the scriptures, is in absolute rebellion with what God has described in his word. It's crazy. R.C. Sproul said something one time that I've mentioned before that is always intriguing to me. It's very true. He said that there is yet a corner of the soul, the heart, that hates God. It's the sin nature. You and I still have it. And deep within us is a rebel. And without Christ, that rebel is very dangerous very dangerous. <laughs> I capitalized the N, I just noticed that. But this is a gracious audience. No one will judge me. All right, you were wondering when things would get controversial this morning. Nothing is controversial like gender-specific things. And it did not begin with gender fluidity in our culture. It began in Genesis chapter 3. Okay, we'll visit that some other time. Okay, another time. Our culture, I think, of all cultures in the world, has made this um, most controversial because of its doctrines of um, diversity, inclusivity, and equity, at least their definition of it. Okay. It's not my definition, certainly not God's definition. Uh, we don't exercise inclusivity on our elder board. Uh, you have to be qualified. Okay? It does not include everyone. Uh, and you have to be a man, by the way, here at Calvary Chapel, which we'll get into a little bit later. Um, all that the culture has instilled in, in all of their ideas has been nothing but destructive to family, to children, and to society as a whole. So why, the, why this is so controversial, controversial makes no sense to me as we watch everything fall apart around us. But whenever or wherever God's word is followed, it is proven to be that which blesses all of those things. So with marriage, the roles are gender-specific, very specific. In Genesis chapter 2, when you read the narrative there, uh, dominion was originally given to Adam, to Adam. God formed the man first, and then he placed him in the garden to tend it and to keep it, to take care of it and cultivate it. That's Genesis chapter 2, verses 7 through 17. Eve was created later and then brought in and under Adam's dominion to be his helper and companion for what God had created them for. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Now, the order of creation is significant. In fact, it's appealed to many times in the New Testament. Adam was created first, and he was given the place of authority, the place of authority. And just as Adam was created directly by God, and he falls under God's dominion, 
Woman was brought from man, and she falls under his dominion. That is Paul's argument from 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 10. It's not my argument. So what should a man's dominion look like in the marriage? I think this is probably one of the most important questions that we can answer. Because one of the things I do in counseling is I ask, I ask the, the ladies, when, are you, when you hear the word dominion, what do you think? I always hear the same thing. I hear a negative impression, a negative definition. But when we look at the scriptures and we look at what the Holy Spirit says the husband's role is in dominion, you know what the leading words are? Love, providing leadership, cherishing his wife, being understanding, being strong, protecting, and providing. Uh, Raise your hand if you think those are negative things. Loving, leading, cherishing. How many wives don't want to be cherished? How many wives don't want to be understood? It's impossible. (laughs) You know, in spite of what our culture is saying, every girl wants a strong man. I don't mean that he can bench press 400 pounds or whatever, but a strong man, a man that is morally courageous and determined to do the right thing. Those arguments, those uh, things come from Ephesians 5, of course, 22 through 33, and 1 Peter 3, 7. That's what biblical dominion looks like. It's beautiful, okay? Now, the man in this whole thing, he does not possess greater dignity or value than the woman. Good luck finding that in the scriptures. Good luck, okay? He just possesses more delegated authority and responsibility for which he will give an account on judgment day. I think that's one of the greatest reliefs to a wife, is she gets to follow his lead knowing he's wrong. On judgment day, he will be disciplined, hopefully beforehand, but she will be rewarded. Do you understand that? You think it's funny, but that is exactly how biblical authority functions. That's exactly how it functions. And my wife is not afraid to say, when I'm making a decision, "Eh, it's on you. (laughs) I'll follow your lead. Payday is someday. (laughs) Yeah. So husbands, God has granted to you his spirit. He's given to you his word so that you might lead well. And so that judgment day would be a good day for you. Pack that around for a little bit. Okay. So husbands, acquaint yourself with his word. Lead your families by its instruction. Any other course of action will curse them. But his word will give life and blessing. Life and blessing. I'll tell you, my wife takes refuge in my dominion. And because God has designed it that way, when I take proper dominion, she thrives in it as God designed it. But when I falter in my dominion, it trickles all the way down through the family. And that's the way God has made it. So wives, what is your role in the marriage? Well, simply put, it is to love your husband, to follow his lead and respect his authority the rest of your life. Just as the church is to follow Christ's lead, and honor the authority that his father has given him. Yeah, that's Ephesians 5, 22 through 23. And then together, husband and wife, by mutually contributing to God's covenant of companionship, you will be heirs together of the grace of life. Heirs together of grace. How many guys want more grace in your life, in your marriage? Well, you got to do it God's way. And I think he knows what he's talking about. Now, as time progresses, um, we'll we'll explore the various roles uh, and their individual responsibilities more thoroughly, more practically, and um, I pray that it will be a benefit to your relationship. Um, I've been married 22 years now, and um, you can talk to my wife. She'll give you a free testimony, 
she's not afraid to say it like it is. And, um, and we, you know, I've shared with you guys before, uh, Shandy came from a Filipino-Hawaiian matriarchal home. I don't know if that makes any sense to you. It means the wife is in, in charge. And I came from a family where a single mother who was doing her best to raise a man to lead his home. Now, what do you think happened when we got married? <laughs> you ever played King of the Hill? Yeah. But you see, early on in our, in our conversion, we, we were converted to Christ together. But in that process of, of growing in that, we, we were absolutely convinced of three things. The inspiration, the authority, and the sufficiency of God's Word. We knew that whatever God said about marriage was right, and that with it would come blessing. And so we began to search the scriptures and submit our lives to it. And you know what? It turns out that God knows what he's talking about. Okay? And uh, I'll tell you, I love being married to my wife. And I, I pray that she loves being married to me. And I'm a blessing to her. Yeah. So um, next week, we'll lay some foundation for the discipleship of our children. And, um, and then we'll hopefully, I can start setting some dates for some other things in all of that. But uh, again, our intention is to help you pro- uh, create vision for your family, for your marriage, and then to help you fulfill that for the glory of God. All right? All right, so children next week, and then we're going to jump into Matthew. I always encourage you to read ahead as much as you can. So anyway, why don't you stand up and we'll pray. If you have any questions about what I've talked about thus far, uh, I would love to talk to you. passionate about these things. We're passionate about worship too. Amen? All right, let's pray. Well, Father, um, I, I thank you for your word, and I, and I understand, Lord, just as, just as I grew in my understanding of the word, and then through much heartache and the provision of a lot of your grace, I have slowly conformed to its instruction. Admittedly, that much of it was painful to me, your instruction and didn't appreciate much of it early on. But now through experience, Lord, it's true. You know what you're talking about. You know what's best. And Lord, the life that obeys your word is a life that is blessed. And uh, so I pray that you'd magnify your word among us, that we would trust that it is your word, that it's absolutely authoritative, and it's sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness, especially marriage and family. So, Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.